women are raising our voices. Solving the problems of the world. We gotta be at the table. Your voice does matter. She wants Hello and welcome to She Roars, a podcast about change and the women who make it happen, on and off the Princeton campus. My name is Margaret Koval. I'm a graduate alumna from 1983, and my guest today is Laura Trevelyan, parent of a current Princeton student from the class of 2022. Laura is an anchor for the British Broadcasting Corporation based here in the U.S. She hosts a program called BBC World News America. And before taking on her current role, she was the BBC's correspondent for the United Nations. Laura was raised in London, but she has American roots, too. She is the great-great-great-granddaughter of Oliver Winchester, founder of the Winchester Repeating Arms Company, the gun that won the West, I think. And she became an American citizen about two years ago, just one day after the last presidential election. So, Laura, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for the introduction, Margaret. It's lovely to be here. It's really <laughs> a pleasure to have you. This is really mean of me, but I'm going to give you a pop quiz. Oops. <laughs> As a recent American citizen, you must have just taken the American no, citizenship. No, it was two years ago, Margaret. Oh, okay. We'll see how your memory works. What year was the U.S. Constitution written? 1787. Ooh, well done. <laughs> okay. Um, name one author of the Federalist papers. Alexander Hamilton. Very, very good. What territory was acquired by the United States in 1803? Louisiana. Okay. I ask you this in great sympathy because I became a British citizen a few years ago myself (gasps) (laughs) and I had to take the British citizenship test. Well, you can go right back at me. I bet I couldn't answer any of the questions. Okay, I have a good one for you. I have two good ones for you. The one that I got, but I don't think I'm going to remember the answer to anymore, and the one that I missed. Uh, The first one that I got back then was um, the patron saint of Wales. David. Oh, I think that's right, actually. Yes. I think that's right. The next one, pub closing times in England. Well, I thought that those had all changed. (laughs) Because there's 24-hour drinkings in the 15 years since I left. Well, they hadn't updated the citizenship test yet. Oh, 11 p.m. then. (laughs) It was 11 p.m. Right. Yes. (laughs) I got it wrong. As it was in my youth, yes. Yes, yes. Anyway... uh, as new citizens, both of us being new citizens, I find these years, these last couple of years, have been just fascinating for a civics exercise, really. We do need to uh, know what political system we're, we're in, and we're seeing it played out in incredible um, uh, slow motion right now, both both countries. I'm thinking about Brexit in the UK, in the parliamentary system. The, the, the way Brexit has been playing out has been really fascinating. But obviously here in the US, we've we've been talking about all kinds of obscure things that we don't normally talk about in American culture, I think. Uh, yes, like the emoluments clause of the <laughs> Constitution, for example. Exactly. And uh, I think it's so interesting having studied for that citizenship test really hard yeah. and really wanting to do well on it. And I'm proud to say that they stopped after six questions because I got six right. Oh, I also good. passed the English test, but then so you would hope <laughs> <laughs> that I would. But it's just so interesting to me, the foresight mm. of our founding fathers, mm. that they tried to think, because of course it was a war of independence against England, so they wanted to guard against any more foreign influence. Mm-hmm. And yet here we are discussing the emoluments clause and the idea, uh, these lawsuits against President Trump, the mm-hmm. allegation being that he's somehow uh, foreign powers may be allowing him to profit from the presidency mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. that they could perhaps gain undue influence over him. But this is exactly what the founding fathers worried about. And so yeah. you, one has to pay tribute to them. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, there's other things that, you know, I'm getting all puzzled by too. I mean, not puzzled by, things that we've taken as givens 
most of our lives, but as we we look at them now in in in, in their active form, maybe we ask different questions about them, such as the electoral college, such as very obscure amendments to the Constitution that that call for the methods to remove the presidency and things like that. I'm just wondering, as a newcomer to the system, what part of our system to you is the most surprising or maybe in any way you want to interpret that question or maybe the most Yeah, well, I think both surprising and robust is actually the system for electing the president because for all that supporters of Hillary Clinton decry it and say that she won the popular vote and Mm -hmm. lost the college, the system is to win the college. And that means that you must campaign across the country and you must campaign and win across the country. You can't just win in the coast where the votes pile up. Mm. And the irony of her losing the upper Midwest where her states that her husband had won Mm. to be the first Democrat in a generation uh, to win those states and thus assume the presidency. And the fact that she lost them and Trump won them, uh, although extraordinary and upsetting to supporters of Hillary Clinton, in a way that also shows the robustness of our system. Mm. I was explaining to my father back in Britain actually about that he said why does Wyoming have two senators and I think you know just possibly one member of Congress and so and again it's so that the urban areas don't take too much precedence so we have our system where every state has two senators and yet that led to a situation with when uh, Justice Kavanaugh was confirmed that there were more votes as it were, opposing him, Mm -hmm. if you were to add up the popular vote in those states of the senators that voted against him compared to those that voted for him. So, but it's our system. It's our system. It's an interest. It's a series of interesting questions, though. Then at what point do we adjust the system? Well, the census of 2020 is the Mm. answer. And that's why that census is so important and why so much is both parties are gearing up and lawyering and fighting over the questions. Because based on the census of 2020, it's possible the Electoral College could even be adjusted. And that places which are very rural could lose Mm -hmm. some votes in the college. Mm So, yeah, it's a that's what to me what's so exciting about America is so dynamic, yeah. ever changing, mm-hmm. and the fact that we're a young country and you know, pretty much the checks and balances that the founding fathers set up are all coming into play at once. Yes, exactly. Very interesting. Interestingly, since you were a, um, a former correspondent covering the United Nations, I thought it was fascinating that uh, quite recently the White House has announced that Heather um, Nauert is going to be the next ambassador to the United Nations. I'm wondering what reactions you might have to that. Of course, she's replacing a, a fairly popular um, uh, ambassador, Nikki Haley. Um, how do you think that's going to play out? How do you think? I think it's a classic move by President Trump, isn't it? So Heather Nauert is the spokesperson at the State Department, has been a very strong communicator of the president's foreign policy and, and that's what fo- he's rewarding yes, but yes. yes but her background mm-hmm. is at fox news mm-hmm. as a correspondent and an anchor there so in a way it sort of underscores the nexus between this white house and fox news it underscores how the president values communication skills mm-hmm. above all else which she's shown that she has but she's obviously light on diplomatic experience mm-hmm. apart from the past period speaking on behalf of the State Department. Mm -hmm. But uh, there was criticism of her predecessor, Nikki Haley, currently the UN ambassador. Uh, But she had been a governor of a major state, although Mm -hmm. she didn't necessarily have foreign policy experience. Right. But she went down very well at the UN, Nikki Haley. Mm -hmm. You know, people in the Secretary General's office I know felt that she was a good negotiator. She was tough. She talked the Trump talk. But she was also a supporter of peacekeeping, for example, within the United Nations, Mm -hmm. although the US reduced some of its contributions to the UN, especially to the Palestinians, that she 
in the end use the United Nations and the system, and the Trump administration did, particularly to bring those sanctions against North Korea, mm-hmm. which arguably brought Kim Jong-un to the negotiating table. Yeah, interesting. No, she was certainly viewed as very effective. And interestingly, I've heard it said that the, the key peacekeeping um, mission that she pursued was was keeping the uh, separating the United Nations from the, the, the stronger anti-multilateralists um, within the White House. And I'm wondering if you think that 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 um, that fine line she was able to straddle will be maintained. I guess it's a good question, isn't it? I mean, I would just note that the Secretary of State Mike Pompeo made a speech in Brussels in which he was very sort of raised questions about the United Nations and mm. whose values it was serving, and, and that's kind of a of a piece with this administration's America First take on right, the world, and right. you know, we're nationalists, we're not globalists, and you know, NATO. But it was interesting in that same speech that although the president has been critical of NATO, Mike mm-hmm. Pompeo underlined uh, its indispensability. Yes, that was the word he used, wasn't <laughs> yeah, it? Yes, exactly. But again, it's a it's a military alliance and not a diplomatic one. So it will be interesting to see how if Heather Nout is confirmed, mm-hmm. and I would imagine she'll have a, a toughish confirmation. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Not least the fact that when she talked about the height of U.S.-German relations being D-Day, <laughs> and of course uh, it's easy to misconstrue people's remarks and yes. to say that they're out of context, yep. but her critics will doubtless pick that up in the confirmation. Of course, D-Day was actually the invasion of German forces in Europe rather than... It, well, it, we um, weren't on the same side as the yeah, Germans. As it turns during, out. <laughs> during D-Day, that is, that is for sure. Um, mm-hmm. But yes, it, it's just a fascinating time, you know, as you point out the Trump administration has really taken multilateralism mm-hmm. to task. It's got a more transactional approach to international institutions. What are they doing for us? Mm-hmm. You guys are freeloading. Mm-hmm. And that's it's causing a lot of ruffled feathers. Absolutely. And I suppose this is this is something of a simple minded question, but I feel like I have to ask it. How is that playing out in in in, in Britain and in Europe? I mean I, let me let me it's not as simple minded as all that actually. No. Britain <laughs> itself is is pulling back from uh, certain aspects of multilateralism. Obviously again pulling out of the European Union or voting to pull out of the European Union. Um, uh, I'm wondering if if there's any commonality in our culture or, or why are these two countries stepping back from some of their prior... Well, of course, commitments. Brexit happened first. Uh, some Indeed. some months before President Trump, the disruptor, was uh, elected. And it is very interesting. But, you know, Britain was always half in, half out of the European mm. Union. We came to it late. We didn't join at the beginning. We were never in the single European currency. Mm-hmm. We've always been critical of the just the creeping expansion of European sovereignty, mm-hmm. uh, well, and the effect Bureaucracy. it has on our mm-hmm. sovereignty, really. So that's been a consistent theme throughout. There was a pretty high turnout for the Brexit referendum, nearly 72%, and a you know, narrowish majority in favour mm-hmm. of leaving. But now it turns out leaving is hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's harder than it was presented it would be during the campaign. It's going to mm-hmm. be very expensive. It's going to cost maybe £40 billion. And because we didn't have what was called a constitutional lock, meaning that all the constituent parts of Britain would have to vote for Brexit for it to happen, mm-hmm. we have this weird situation where Scotland and Northern Ireland voted to remain, mm. England and Wales voted to leave, and now it's being imposed on Scotland and Northern Ireland. And the question of Northern Ireland and the border with the Republic of Ireland, because they share mm. a geographical body, uh, nobody wants a hard border there. Mm. But in order to not have a hard border, uh, the deal that Theresa May came up with the, with the EU means that Britain Theresa remains. May. Sorry, so the, the, the prime minister, the, of course. Yes, exactly. The me. deal that Britain's prime minister came up with with the EU involves. 
basically the United Kingdom staying in a temporary customs union with the EU until a proper deal is worked out with that border with mm-hmm. Northern Ireland and yeah. the Irish Republic. Because, you know, I covered the end of the Northern Ireland troubles more than 20 years ago. And the economic prize of the end of the troubles mm-hmm. was so important to both Northern Ireland and the Republic that with the end of the troubles, there would be more trade, there would be freer trade. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the idea that you would have a hard border now yeah, is, awful. Is, is, is tricky. And now we have this compromise, which maybe it works for Northern Ireland, but for Brexiteers, people who voted for Brexit, it's a horrible idea that we stay in this temporary customs union, maybe indefinitely. Mm, yeah, very, very interesting. I'll be fascinated to see how it Super plays out. Super complicated. Super complicated, and uh, and uh, yes, um, very uh, um, fascinatingly to my mind. You're not only a new American citizen, and you've lived here quite some number of years. Fifteen years, nearly. fifteen years. Yes. So you know, well, well, well acclimatized. Uh, but also you have deep roots here. Uh, I think I mentioned in the introduction that your your three times great uh, grandfather was the founder of the Winchester uh, Repeating Rifle Company. Um, tell me, you know, as you as you describe uh, America's uh, attachment to the Second Amendment, mm. when when you how do you describe that? How do you frame that? to your friends back home in Britain, for example. Well, it's all to do with the past, isn't it? And the birth of our republic, that we were born out of conflict with uh, an overarching foreign power, that we were born through a revolutionary war with England. And then after that, we settled the West and in, well, conquered, however you wish to use the word, And that was a violent and bloody conquest, Mm, too. mm. And for both, we needed weapons Mm. and to get food, to defend yourself, you know, out of a violent birth was was born the gun culture. And what was so interesting to me, actually, in writing this book about my um, ancestor was just about the number of people who use the Winchester rifle. So it was very popular with Native Americans. They called Mm -hmm. it the spirit gun. Interesting. And Native Americans prized it. Mm -hmm. And um, actually, at the Battle of Little Bighorn, Mm -hmm. you know, that infamous battle, Mm -hmm. uh, it was Native Americans with repeating rifles, which they had got from the colonists. Mm -hmm. Uh, Their victory was born out of the repeating rifle, Mm -hmm. the one, the same one that had been used to slaughter them. So they used to slaughter others at the Battle of Little Bighorn. And then subsequently in the Reconstruction period, just how African-Americans also prized the Winchester rifle Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. at at a time when they were lynched, Mm -hmm. that a Winchester was seen as something essential that every African-American man should have in his home to defend his family. So Mm -hmm. I guess this is very different to Britain's Mm -hmm. past. Mm -hmm. So when people say, oh, well, in Britain, you know, we had a... We had a mass shooting and then we immediately outlawed these rifles. Well, in America, it's not so simple Mm. because in our past, uh, the weapon was bound up with that very sense of being and of defending yourself. Yes, or even, as you say, of being, of being a nation, of being an independent nation. Mm. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. Um, I wanted to talk to you also. I hope you don't mind because you're here in part as the mother of a Princeton student. Oh, absolutely. Of whom I'm sure you're very proud. As all tiger mothers are. (laughs) Yes, tiger mother indeed. Um, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the dual role of being a professional, a very, very um, successful professional and a mother, and uh, some of the issues uh, around the ah, Michelle Obama. The myriad was, issues. <laughs> Michelle Obama recently was uh, speaking on the topic, and I think you famously, uh, she famously um, 
issued a colorful uh, refutation of, of the ability to, for women to have it all. I wonder what your thoughts on she that She did, are. exactly. So she was sort of referring to Sheryl Sandberg and, and leaning in and uh, the idea that if women were to lean in, that would just solve at least some of our issues. Uh, but Michelle Obama says something that really resonated with me because it seems so honest in, mm. in that she said, you can't have it all at once, mm-hmm. which, and to me, that was like a light bulb going off in my head mm-hmm. because, as you say, it's the constant struggle, isn't it? You know, I have three children. You also... I have two boys. Right. So how do you work and raise children and perhaps also try to be a responsible member of your community and keep your marriage intact and everything else without hitting the bottle? Right. You know? <laughs> well, let's not or something that out. <laughs> right, indeed, or while not hitting it too much. Mm. So, and m- my own conclusion to it in having the opportunity to move to anchoring about six years ago when my youngest son was six, was that actually you, you can't, there is no such thing as having it all. Because if you're working, and actually Anne-Marie Slaughter wrote a really excellent article about this, about mm-hmm. her time as being a top State Department official and raising small children. Well, of course you can't do both because there aren't enough hours in the day and you can't yeah. be in two places at once. So if you're flying, I mean, I had an experience where I was covering the cholera epidemic in Haiti. Ben, my youngest, was very small. And just a heartbreaking time outside a hospital where a woman wanted me to take her baby because she was dying. And I thought afterwards, well, what am I doing here where there is someone who wants to give me her baby and my three children are at home and they're very small and what on earth is going on here? Something is not quite... Yes, exactly. What is wrong with this picture? A lot. So I had an opportunity to move to a schedule where I was more in control of it. Yeah, because I think Michelle Obama is right. You, If you're working full tilt, you're subcontracting your childcare because mm. it's not possible mm. unless you have a job that you can do from home. But if you have a job that requires you to be out of the home... You really can't take your children with you. Um, and so you, someone else is doing it for you and you're overseeing that person. You're scheduling them. That's a ton of work. At least this is my experience anyway. I speak for no one other than myself. But when Michelle Obama said you can't have it all at once, I think she's right. And of course. And it makes you feel guilty if you're not having it all and guilty if you take another track so that you can. Um, it's hard. Yeah, it is. And I think uh, certainly the, the, the online community lit, open, lit up over that comment. I think it resonated enormously with an awful lot of mothers. Younger generation, w- women a, a generation younger than, than, than mm. you and I, perhaps, people who are having children right now. Um, and I wonder if we see some kind of realignment, you know, in well, it's the world. very interesting to see, right, whether if you think the generation above us had to sort of shut up and pretend they didn't have any children. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a secret shame <laughs> if you had children. And then there's our generation trying to have it all. And maybe there'll be more honesty for the next generation mm-hmm. and more honesty about the choices that are involved. And maybe those choices are made more by men. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I think I do see that. I do see more men who are whether more situations where the women is the woman is the main earner and the man is at home and but i think in this conversation in this country you know what's often so often missing is the idea of affordable childcare and how blooming expensive it is yeah. it's a second mortgage to yeah have no childcare. absolutely i certainly remember when i was trying to balance i worked for abc news as a matter of fact for nightline i tried to balance terrible hours yeah terrible hours <laughs> And expensive daycare, and twenty-four uh, hour care, twenty-four hour care, and coming home, uh, coming home with 
maybe $10 in my pocket more than I was paying out after taxes. Well, it was an investment in mm. your future. Yes, yes. And, but, and I probably was among the very lucky ones, of course. Uh, so I, I Right, because you had a well-paid job. Mm. So relative to – but think if you're trying to hold down two jobs in cleaning mm. and in – at a restaurant just so you could make ends meet. It, it's impossible, mm. and the strain it places exactly. is and huge. I, I, feel, uh, uh, I feel that the uh, somewhat sad that the next generation is still um, struggling with these issues. It sort of felt, as you say, we had hoped men would pick up more of the slack, but it's almost never enough, yeah? Well, I think the fact is that, <laughs> back to Michelle Obama, you can't have it all at once if you... Having a family is a choice. It's a lot of work. Mm. And just to sound old-fashioned about it, but it involves duty and sacrifice. Mm. And who's going to make the sacrifice? Mm. And are you both going to step up and do your duty? And these choices and these compromises and these challenges will never go away. But perhaps we can be more honest about it and not say, oh, it's you, the woman who must be the dutiful one and make the sacrifice. And But it, the essential nature of that compromise and challenge will never change. But at least we're talking about it much mm. more honestly and openly. Yes, I think that's a huge step forward. And I think that, you know, with talk can come perhaps some innovative solutions, something that, that we hadn't thought up yet. Um, and with that, I should probably wrap this up. I'm so sorry to say. No, Margaret, it's a pleasure. I'm looking forward to seeing my tiger. And <laughs> thank you for the invitation. And I would say that it's very inspiring, isn't it, to see the next generation here on campus. Yes, it's very inspiring. And They'll I figure it out. They'll figure it out, absolutely. <laughs> I want to say thank you very much to Laura Tavellian, and I want to thank also Dan Kearns, our audio engineer, and Danielle Alio, our producer, and ask our audience to please come back, download some previous episodes, and tune in for the next ones. We look forward to bringing you more conversations from the women of Princeton. This podcast is a production of the Princeton University Office of Communications with assistance from Instructional Support Services and the Office of Information Technology. The opinions expressed herein represent the views of the individuals involved, not those of the university. Princeton podcasts are available on major distribution channels, including Spotify and the Apple and Google podcast apps. If you have suggestions for future episodes or topics, please send them to podcasts at princeton.edu.